0: Might do a little dance tonight. One time for
1: the night time, one time for my time. The lights might do a little dance tonight.
0: Hey, this is Bart Campolo, and welcome to the wonderful podcast. I am the humanist chaplain here at the University of Southern California and the only person that you're guaranteed to hear on this podcast. But today, the other person you're going to hear on this podcast is my friend Jesse Graham. And, and, but Jesse, how, you? How, do you, how should I introduce you? A professor, doctor?
1: Uh, my official title is Assistant Professor of Psychology.
0: Wow, that yeah. sounds so much less impressive than I know, you are. I
1: know. I still have the word assistant in my title. Okay, but... I, I don't give anybody any assistance whatsoever. so <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm useless, but I'm still an assistant. But you are a PhD as well. I am, yeah. So I could call yeah. you doctor. You could, you could call me doctor. Yes. Yeah, That's fine. All right. And you
0: went to the Harvard Divinity School. <laughs> I did, yeah. Does yep. that mean I can call you the Reverend Doctor? You
1: cannot call me Reverend I can't do Actually, that. no, you can, because I at one point ordained myself on the. Uh, Church of the Church of Life or some California church where you can self ordain online,
0: right? So you could marry somebody or something. Well,
1: yeah, actually, my wife and I were getting married in Japan, and we had her brother marry us. So we just ordained him online. And while we were at it, we thought, hey, we went to divinity school. Way to Why go! Why not ordain ourselves? i never made use of it. I've never actually married anybody else, but. But But
0: you are the reverend doctor.
1: I have that. So I I am the reverend doctor. That's that's right. (laughs) It's way better. I I forgot about that. But yeah, you're right. It's
0: way better than assistant professor.
1: (laughs) Yes. You know, I
0: I was at the, I mean, I was at the mayor's prayer breakfast here in Los Angeles Mm -hmm. today. And uh, the mayor, by the way, what an amazing speaker on social justice, like no notes had me, moved me. Like it was shocking. I mean, you don't expect to actually be inspired at a prayer breakfast, yeah. especially when you are a secular humanist. Yeah, um, but yeah, it was it was quite remarkable. Oh, but in any right. case, the Reverend Doctor would have served you much better there. Than... Yes, that's right. All right. So so here is the deal. On these podcasts, the people that listen to these podcasts, I, I always think of them as people that would like to get to be in the kind of conversations that I get to be in all the mm-hmm. time. Like they would they would love like most of the people listening to this podcast would be so thrilled if they were able to have lunch with you. No. But they can't. <laughs> so they're going to overhear our conversation. All right. Sounds All right? good. So in some ways, I've
1: got lots of questions for you. Mm-hmm. Tell me how you got here. Yeah, I grew up in Kansas City um, and uh, lived there my whole life, was, was in the same house. Um, and uh, then I went to college. Uh, I wanted to go to a big city to go to college because that was exciting. And I wanted to go yeah. to a place more exciting than Kansas City. So I went to the University of Chicago. Uh, for college. And I was a psych major there um, and did a, an honors thesis project. So that most of my work was in psychology. But by my junior and senior year, I was getting much more interested in religion and philosophy and in literature. And so I thought, oh, I screwed up. I should have been a, a lit major or, or philosophy or something in the humanities. Uh, and so then I actually, the, the year after college, um, I worked a really boring job. Uh, computer programming for a bank, worked there enough to save up some money and then went traveling around the world. And, um, and so that was, that was exciting. But I knew I wanted to go to grad school. I just didn't know what I wanted to go in. You know, I I liked being in school. I liked reading, you know, Kierkegaard and Dostoevsky and all those people, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just liked reading that stuff. So I applied to PhD programs in philosophy and in religious studies. Um, and was kind of choosing between two different PhD programs. And then I thought, I really have no idea what I'm doing. Why why would I sink into this 10 year, you know, eight year, 10 year program. Um, and so I hedged my bets. And that's why I went to Harvard Divinity School, because this is a nice two or three year program. And half my classes could be in other departments. Uh, at Harvard. So I was able to, you know, take all the literature classes I wanted, take all the philosophy, all that stuff. Um, but I mean, it sounds like that was like just like a three-year extension of college. For it you. was, yeah. And, and and I've really, I just got a seven-year undergraduate education, the sort of <laughs> interdisciplinary, you know, majoring in whatever. Um, and, and you ended up with a, an MDiv? Uh, no, actually. there So there are two tracks at the Divinity School. There's the Divine Track, where you get an MDiv, and that's what, you know, anybody who wanted to be a, a reverend or priest or rabbi was in, in that track. Um, and then there was the Masters of Theological Studies, the non-divine track. And so that's that's the track I was in. I met my wife there. She was also non-divine. So we, we were in the, the non-divine wing of the Divinity School.
0: And so are you guys, stu- you're studying religion and lots of other things, it sounds yeah. And like. lots of other stuff. And yeah. you
1: know, she she's a writer, and so she was able to take a lot of classes in creative writing when she was there. Um, and so it was. And and then actually, both of us ended up going back to our original majors after that. So after the div school, we taught English in Japan for a year, um, also just to kind of explore, and because you know we, we didn't exactly want to settle down yet. And then uh, when we came back, so my experience at, at the divinity school was great in part because I got to take PhD level classes in philosophy and and in literature and religion. Um, and I, I got the sense that, oh, I would be unhappy if I was a PhD student in philosophy. You know, I like reading this stuff. I like reading Wittgenstein, but I would have to become the expert on, you know, the second paragraph of page 53 of this right, track. I just
0: talked to a PhD student here oh, really? in philosophy and she said, all the really cool big questions, they've been done. And so to get a PhD, your dissertation has to be about some arcane smaller and smaller. little piece yeah. of philosophy. Yeah. It sounded yeah. really dis- – and,
1: and I think that's, that's probably true of almost all fields, but it, it felt especially frustrating in the case of philosophy. And it, and it felt like um, – you know, a lot of the discussions were really interesting, but it kind of felt like, wow, everybody's been having the same discussions for for decades, and it, there wasn't a sense that there was any kind of forward progress. And so that's actually what sent me back to to science and to data, th- this idea of, well, you know, if we're running studies, there. There's, there's data and that's a little bit of a, a kind of firmer ground for actual you know forward traction so you cycled uh, all the way back to psychology so I went back to psychology I had been uh, I worked in an infant studies program as an undergrad and so I had some interest in in developmental psychology so I think about half the programs I applied to were developmental half of them were were in social um, but social psychology seemed really interesting to me because that seemed to really border on all these humanities uh, you know I, I kind of see social psychology as as a hub that you know Touches on everything you could be interested in. Touches on philosophy, um, religion, religion, sociology, anthropology. Yeah. You know all all the 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 other stuff that I'm not majoring in. You know that I don't have a PhD in. Um, you know I can and I can collaborate with people in those in those fields. And I actually still collaborate with developmental psychologists as well. So
0: so you, so so did div school, then did a PhD program in psychology.
1: That's right. Yeah. yeah. At yeah at University of Virginia. And okay. so um, at Virginia, like like a lot of schools, I wrote to professors who were in developmental and in in social psychology. If if any of your listeners are thinking about grad school, it's always a good idea to contact you know a bunch of professors and find out if they're taking students and and try to you know establish some interests. And the developmental person I I wrote to just said, well, you know, if you want to work with me, apply developmental. If you want to work with other people, apply social. Um, and then the the first professor that I wrote to in social was a guy named John Haidt, who'd done some interesting stuff on morality and on disgust. And he also, I, I noticed that he had a bachelor's in philosophy, so he had this sort of humanities background, too. Um, and, and he wasn't th- yet the famous John was, Yeah, he, wa- he was probably, he was, yeah, he wasn't famous yet. He wasn't infamous yet. He was probably f- famous, you know, within within psychology right. at that time. But yeah, he wasn't the world famous John Haidt at the time. Um, but I, uh, and so I, I wrote to him, and we really hit it off. You know, he sent me a long Email back, and it just started this great correspondence, and and uh, it, it was really a perfect match. And so he was my advisor at, at University of Virginia, and so um, we started doing a lot of work. And actually, when I got there, I, I was still planning on doing a lot of developmental stuff. I thought, you know, he had done all the stuff on the emotional and intuitive basis of moral judgments, and that seemed really interesting to me. And and you know, a lot of the moral education approaches were very reason and and rational. Um, sort of thinking based. And so I thought, well, maybe we could develop some kind of moral education program that was trying to aim at the heart instead of the head. And so I had all these sort of education developmental interests. Um, And when I started there, it was 2004. And so this is during the the 2004 election. And we just started getting much more interested in ideology and and all these sort of deep moral conflicts between liberals and conservatives in the US. And so um, my research really took off in that direction. Really? So it
0: was was what was going on in the country at the time that got you.
1: That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was, you know, how many liberals just hated Bush, how many conservatives uh, you know, hated gore and then Kerry um, and just all the, the –
0: Polarization yeah, stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. Culture war clashes. The And I think 2004 was the, the first year that they started asking people at the polls um, about things like moral values. Like are you voting based on moral values? And, mm-hmm. um, and the term was, was sort of vague and people didn't really specify exactly what they meant. But it did seem like these kind of moral values, whatever people meant by that, were getting people out to the polls and, and were playing some kind of role in what was going on politically. Um, and so we got really interested in, and in why is it? You know, why is it that you know you have these two groups, and every Sunday morning you have liberals and conservatives screaming at each other on these talk shows? They never seem to make any progress. It never leads to any kind of you know synthesis or. Or resolution, which you would think that we're all rational creatures and especially in something like politics, like how to how to run the government and what kind of policies we should have, there should be some sort of forward progress.
0: Some consensus should emerge. Yeah, some consensus
1: like- should emerge, but it just seemed like the more they were screaming at each other, the, the farther and farther away they got. Um, and I think we still see that in the polarization too. And I think part of that is the just the nature of moral conviction that you know if you if you feel like somebody else doesn't share your moral values, it ju- you just see them moving forward farther away or you see this wall set up between the two of you okay so here you are you're here at usc Mm -hmm.
0: you're studying psychology Mm -hmm. um and and not developmental psychology you're studying social psychology right the way people interact like the psychology of how people interact with each other Mm -hmm. yeah and your big thing yeah i know you studied under john hate height 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 People and,
1: don't like him. Call him hate. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and and I mean, I read his book, The Righteous Mind, uh-huh. yeah. and it's it, that's the book that sort of I feel like put him on the larger map. All of a sudden, he's on all the talk shows, right. and, and 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 that was a book about just what you were talking about, like wh- why people can't sort of reach consensus on these issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're still in that track. You're still thinking about like moral psychology, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so at this stage in the game, like. What's the question that you're trying to answer?
1: Yeah, I I think I mean it it, it really is continuous with a, a lot of the work that I did with John. Um, I think my main question is, you know, what is it about these deep core convictions? And and it, it could be political convictions, but it could be moral convictions. It could be religious convictions. I'm, I'm really interested in, in all three of those, um, and I, I'm interested in, in how they differ and, and how they could be the same. Um, but, you know, it's. The, I think this core question really is still, you know, why do these core convictions, uh, you know, unite people and divide them? Um, why do people get so pissed off about these things, um, but they sort of hold them as as cherished as well? I mean, it really seems like a sort of dark side, light side. Um, so one of my main interests is actually the sort of dark side of morality. Like we all think that, you know, no matter who you ask, people would say morality is a good thing. You know, moral values are a good thing. Um, but the more I study morality, the more kind of... Uh, I don't know queasiness I have about it i a lot of times I think our moral nature really does kind of separate us um I think our moral nature can help lead to um you know things like war and genocide and um you know it can motivate terror attacks and um and so I'm really interested in the dark side of of moral convictions as well how can how can you get things like morally motivated violence yeah, yeah.
0: okay, so I'm going to back you way, way way out okay. now and go like. In elementary school. <laughs> well, no, no, no. Like, I, like I think about myself, and I and I think I was for thirty years an evangelical Christian, right? And then I finally got to the place where like my supernatural credulity was gone. Yeah. And so now I'm a secular humanist. You know, value. I, I still value loving relationships, meaningful work, social justice, and all that stuff. But, but on a purely secular basis. Yeah. And, and what I would have always thought as a religious person was that my morality mm-hmm. flowed out of my religious convictions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But now, you know, then when my religious convictions evaporated, I was like, oh, my morality must be root Like now I would still have it. Yeah. I still have it. (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm still there. And, you know, and so, and I have students that come to me and say, listen, I'm losing my faith in God. And I'm really worried that I won't be a good person anymore. Right. Can you give me a secular reason to be good? Yeah. Yeah. And I end up saying, like, you know, the thing, my, my sense is that it, I used to think that religion generated my morality. Mm -hmm. Now I feel fairly certain that my morality is what drove me to religion in the first place and that Mm -hmm. really religion – for humanity's sake, it feels to me like religion was created to codify a morality that predated it. Do, do when you guys are studying do you go far enough back that you like do you have a sense of like where does morality come from in the first place
1: yeah i mean i i definitely believe that uh our our morality um, a lot of our these kind of core convictions are um innate and, and i don't think you know you, you're not born with specific moral views you know you're not born with a uh, pro-choice view or something, you know, anything really specific like that. But I do think there are these kind of core intuitions that people have that is a part of human nature that, that did evolve. Um, and I think, you know, and people have talked about a, a sort of a evolutionary basis of religious beliefs as well, right? Um, and so it's you know people ask me things like or you know with political ideology there's some some work on looking at the kind of you know inherent temperamental differences between liberals and conservatives so a lot of times if i give a talk on say moral differences across the political divide people will say well which which comes first is it is it that i'm liberal because i have these moral values this particular collection of moral values or do i have these particular moral values because i'm liberal and it's a really hard chicken and egg question to answer. And I think the same goes for the religion versus morality. You know, do you, do you have particular religious views because they're in line with your, with your moral values? Um, so I do think there's a kind of uh, underlying, um, you know, evolved, but also just sort of like individual difference temperament uh, factor to a lot of these things. Um, but I mean, don't you get the sense that – I'm going to tip my
0: hand a little bit, but like <laughs> it feels to me when I look at religions mm-hmm. – whether it's the most traditional Christianity, Judaism, mm-hmm. Islam, or the most like recent Scientology, or right. they all look pretty invented to me. Mm-hmm. They look yep. socially constructed, mm-hmm. um, and they look like they were socially constructed to serve certain anthropological purposes, like yep. and in response to particular
1: historical events too. Right. That's yeah.
0: I mean, you know, and 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 so. You know, it makes sense to me that in an agrarian culture that was struggling for survival, be fruitful and multiply. Like, mm-hmm. you know, have as many kids as possible. Like, that's what the tribe needs you to do. Yeah. So yeah. it becomes the it, it becomes a religious imperative. Yeah, yeah. Um, and 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 right now, you know, you look around and you think, stop being fruitful and multiplying. Right. <laughs> and, and religious people go, no, no, no. That's that's not. That's
1: fixed. That's written. Yeah, that's written. Yeah, that's 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 handed down. So,
0: so it feels to me like if they were invent, if if religions really did emerge in different cultures mm-hmm. for particular reasons in particular time, yeah. historically specific. But it feels to me like morality, mm-hmm. or like our moral intuitions, like compassion. Mm-hmm. Would would that be a moral intuition? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. It feels like compassion grows up among bonobos, among elephants, yeah. like. You don't
1: have a culture where compassion is just unimportant. Right. right.
0: Social animals, sort of if your survival depends on the tribe, yeah. all of a sudden you go like, hey, it works for me. Mm-hmm. It naturally selects the ones that look out for other tribe members yeah. do better. Yeah. So, so that's why I would say like it feels to me like morality predates any kind of religious ideology.
1: Yeah, and, and certainly specific religious ideology, you know, specific religious teachings or, or um, you know, things that, that do come out of particular historical periods. Um, yeah, and I think compassion is a great example because that's one of these sort of intuitive factors um, that we look at. And we, we look at across cultures. We look at uh, across different historical epics. Um, and you could find some, you know, you could look at ancient Sparta as an example where um, compassion might be less relied upon. But there, you know, there are specific teachings about, well, don't let compassion be your only guide because sometimes, you know, we need to be hard-nosed and, um, and we need to, to put that down. So it's not that they didn't have compassion. It's that they were at a particular time where they were saying, no, we're actually, you know, our survival depends on us going to war with these other groups. We, we must be strong. We must be hard. Um, and so I think compassion has been there, and, and I do think it's part of our, our nature. Is it um, one
0: of those, I mean, I'm assuming that you come from the same school that says there are some elemental – inclinations or moral
1: gut level stuff that oh absolutely what are they yeah so one of the things we've looked at um in trying to, I don't know, get a kind of categorization for these intuitions. Because you know, I'm, I'm what I would call a moral pluralist, that I don't think there's just one moral value. I don't think there's just one morality that everything reduces to one thing. Um, and so I think there are a few different uh, you know, evolved psychological systems that we have. Um, and so what we've looked at and what we call moral foundations theory, um, so far we've looked mostly at, at five different ones. But the first one, I think, is basically the compassion that we were talking about. And um, care. And care. And, and I think it, it has a lot to do do with nurturance, um, you know, parent-child bonds, but it also just has to do, you know, if you see somebody suffering, if you see somebody in pain, you have a moral problem with that, you know, and I think that that goes... Mirror cultures. neurons and... It could, could have something to do with that, but I, I think it's just a, a basic kind of reaction that, you know, there's something wrong with other people's suffering okay. um, and there's something morally wrong with with intentionally causing that suffering. Um, and then another one is, is just basic intuitions of fairness and justice. You know, you can see it in little kids if they're trying to um, share something. Something um, you can you can see it, and uh, you know Franz de Waal has has shown this in in other primates, where you know if one monkey gets the the really delicious the grape, grape and the other one gets the cucumber, the one that gets the cucumber gets pissed off and throws the cucumber away. You know, so there's some sense of fairness, like hey, wait a minute, that's not fair. Um, and so I think you know, and across cultures, you see these different notions of justice and equality and and equity. Um, and then another one we've looked at is a, a kind of more group level concerns. so things like expectations of of group loyalty. Um, and, I, and so I think that's something that you see across cultures, this, the sense that um, and I think a lot of times this comes in. group in out-group stuff. In-group, out-group stuff. And I, I think this can come into conflict with these fairness intuitions. Um, and I, I think a lot of what's interesting about morality is is when these moral values come into conflict. Um, but I think most people would share the intuition that if I cared exactly the same for a stranger as I do for my own sons, there would be something kind of Wrong morally, with you. morally off about me. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so and, and in some ways, that's a prejudice, right? That's, that's an unfairness, right? I'm, I'm going to care more for my— my family members than I will for strangers. Um, and you know, and, the, and we we've seen you know historically there's all more kinds free, of yeah. injustices, right? People care more for people in their own country than people in, in other countries. People care more for people in their own race than people of other races. You know, so there's all this sure. work. Sure, people
0: on, care more for their species than they do for other species. Exactly. Like we I'll care more eat about other, another species. That's
1: right. That's right. Um, and we care more for animals than we do for plants, probably. You know, so there's different levels of prejudice as you as you expand the moral circle out. Um, and so part of how I think about these different intuitions, we I've just been doing a project on on moral circles and how people conceptualize these moral circles where I'm in the middle and then maybe my immediate family is is in the in the next ring and then extended family and you know you, you could extend that out to people in my nation you know other humans other animals uh, things like that um, till you get out to you know space rocks or something you know inanimate objects on other planets is about as far out as you can get um, and I think People have different intuitions because we 've asked different people how far should your moral circle extend, and some people say, "Well, it should really be mostly about your family or, or mostly about you know all humans, um, but some people say it should extend as, as far as possible. you know we should care more for other animals, we should care more for plants, maybe we should care more for space rocks you know so um, I think there 's an intuition we have of anywhere you draw the line that 's prejudice you know if you if you draw the line between humans and non humans that's a form of of prejudice, you know, and and I think, um, especially you know, for for a sort of uh, you know liberal um, mindset, that that something feels wrong about that. But, but at the same fa- time, but it feels wrong the other way too. Like it, exactly, it, I want you.
0: To, like I'm looking at you, and I'm like, I want you to be more loyal to your kids yeah. than you are to mine. Then yeah, partly because that frees me up to feel okay about. Being more loyal to my kids right. than to yours, like, right. you know, I'm, right. I'm, some I'm, kind I'm of, like uh, Jesse. you will take care of his kids, yeah, yeah. and I'll take care of my kids, right. and 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 if I was if I was told I was supposed to be equally responsible for your kids, that would bother me. Therefore, I don't want you to feel equally responsible for mine. Yeah, because then it's, I got to reciprocate.
1: Right, right.
0: So I like in group out group so, stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. There could be a, a kind of fairness, although I do think you know you get you get things like. Um, you know, nationalism and, and racism, I, I think some – of the, you know, there are some moral underpinnings to, to those things, you know. and I do too, but
0: yeah. I mean I, I, when I hear you say that, I sort of go like, yeah, but wait a second. Even if I'm like my tribe and your tribe, mm-hmm. I feel like if I really understood ecology and human psychology and all these things that I would realize that what was in the best interest of my tribe mm-hmm. is for your tribe to thrive. Mm-hmm. That you're less dangerous to me if you're thriving, yeah. that, and so in it's a sense, it's not a zero sum. It's not a zero yeah. sum. So, yeah. so in a sense, like you know, I was talking with a a guy. I was talking about you know, because I'm a, I'm a community builder, mm-hmm. and I'm like everybody needs a tribe. And he was like, oh, I don't like that tribal yeah. language. Yeah, that that immediately connotes tribal there's, there's war. Knee
1: jerk reaction that that's racist. That's, that's and bad. I was like, yeah. you
0: know what? Unless your tribe, one of its core values is seeking the health of other tribes. Because you see it as – or, or like you see it as vital for your own self-interest. Yeah. I mean you know, my, you know, I'm a big fan of Robert Ingersoll, the, the, mm-hmm. the great agnostic. And Ingersoll's – like one of his famous lines was, the only, the only thing we figured out from all of science is that happiness is the only human value. Mm-hmm. The time to be happy is now. Mm-hmm. The place to be happy is here. And the way to be happy is by making others so, mm-hmm. and yeah. so what he was sort of saying is like, look, your well-being, your happiness is all caught up in other people's well-being, right. and I just wonder if that extends. It's it feels to me like tribal groupings wouldn't be a bad thing if people understood that basic truth. That's
1: right, yeah, or you know, or congregations like like the kind of communities you're trying to build. Yeah, right? um, and, and I do think there's a, a difference. There. I mean, I, I agree with that, and I think there's a difference between you know one notion of tribalism is well you know here's here's my tribe here's my congregation here's my tightly knit group where we you know watch out for each other and we we really care about each other um and then there's everybody else and that everybody else is just sort of um Uh, You know, it's it's diffuse, It's undifferentiated. It's just others. You know, I don't care that much about them. But I think what you're saying is, no, I have my tribe and I have my my group and I want there to be other groups that are doing the same thing for each other. Um, Because I think there is a, you know, social psychology has this rich tradition of, of studying in group versus out group and out group derogation and things like that. I think part of the out group derogation is just saying, well, that's all just other people. I don't really give a shit about them. You know, I don't I don't care about them at all. Um, and so I don't care if they're finding meaningful congregations the way the way I am. Um, and so what you're saying so- sounds a little bit different to me in that it's saying I recognize the the value of this in group of this you know a powerful sort of congregation, but I want that to be the case for other groups too. Yeah, um, that so- that sounds very different than there's my group and then there's everybody else and who cares about them? Well, and and,
0: and I mean it's funny like I did a lot of work in Israel Palestine and, and the most progressive Israelis I knew. We're all two staters. Mm -hmm. And and they were two staters. They said, I'm a Zionist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but but they said there can be no safe and secure, healthy Israel unless the people on the other side of our borders have their own country. And they're okay. Yeah. Like I want their economy to go well. I want them to do well. Right. And, and it's and that's just very
1: non-zero sum thinking. Very non-zero sum yeah. thinking. I, I think it's not not necessarily intuitive, right? I mean, a lot of times, if it's if it's us versus them, there's a very intuitive way you can fall into just seeing it as a zero sum game. Yeah. I mean, seeing it as, uh, you know, seeing politics as a, a zero sum winner take all, um, or sports. You know, these kinds of things that are were very good. war. You know, I mean, that, th- these things were. Um, you know, very, very good at that kind of come naturally to us are, I think, products of, of zero sum thinking. Um, and and so I think there's a there's a kind of, I don't know, in, enlightenment that that you're talking about that when you realize it's actually better for you for other people, yeah. the, the the others, the them. Um, to be doing well, yeah, and that that your destiny is wrapped up in theirs, yeah, yeah, yeah. so okay, I, I mean so again, I agree with that, but i, I just think that doesn 't come naturally to humans, so a lot of times, if you say you know- uh having a tribe is really important or having a having an in group is really important uh I think when people feel a resistance to that it 's that well, but the way most people do in group out group is I care for the in group and who who cares about the out group yeah. right yeah
0: so so i 've got care and compassion mm-hmm. i 've got um
1: Fairness, and fairness justice, justice, and then this in-group, in-group, loyalty. in-group yeah. loyalty. And then another one we've looked at is um, authority. So I think uh, social hierarchies can carry moral obligations too. Um, and so this would be things that – this would be sort of moral intuitions that you have within a group. Um, and it would be things like expectations of fulfilling your proper role, whether you're at the at the top or whether you're at the bottom. And so things like expectations of showing proper respect or obedience or deference, um, taking care of your your underlings. Um and also respect for traditions. You know, I think there's a kind of sense of maintaining the order of of whatever your social arrangement is, um, and a lot of the moral concerns that people express are like, well, but if we do that, then things will change or it will lead to chaos. You know, um, and so everybody should should fulfill their proper role, which is, I think, in a lot of ways, these are moral intuitions that again are very anti egalitarian. Right? If you're going to be completely egalitarian, then we shouldn't have any structure or hierarchy in society. No property. Um, that's right. No property. Yeah. So. I've been part of very left-wing groups, you know, like fighting for a living wage or something, and those groups were always a nightmare to sort of manage because we couldn't have a leader, you know, we couldn't, or we would have rotating leaders, and it would just be a mess, you know, and and everything had to be decided uh, on full consensus, you know, because even you know voting was seen as uh, sort of tyrannical, you know, and there
0: wasn't necessarily it was, it was tacitly. We don't want to admit that some people are smarter than other people.
1: Yeah, or or that some people more you know, would capable be, than would be other better people. at certain roles right. and things like. So I think you know the Occupy Wall Street movement, um, which which initially I thought was great was so frustrating to watch because it was so disorganized and I think a lot of that was because of this you know commitment to uh, having no structure whatsoever, having no hierarchy. So
0: those people didn't yeah. necessarily have a great respect for authority or respect loyalty. Or That's right. For yeah. Order. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. But you're saying like. Some people have higher degrees of that, or some people have lower. But that's one of those gut level. Like yeah. I can tell a lot about you by how much you care about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay.
1: yeah. Or, or you know, different notions of respect. Um, and then the last one we've looked at we call sanctity or purity and it, and it has a lot to do with our kind of intuitive moral disgust reactions um, and so I think um, this is something that you can see uh, across cultures and in different historical periods um, but just to sort of sense that if something is is um, unnatural or or weird, uh, then it, there's something morally wrong with it. So I think you know a lot of reactions to homosexuality or or any kind of sexual difference is is just seen as like oh that's that creeps me out so that must be morally wrong right. Um, or you know there 's other things you know like there 's a i don 't know an image that I always show of a, of a dog human hybrid this is an artist rendering, but it was really realistic looking and people had this immediate reaction to it that 's not just that 's physically gross it 's that is wrong you know or if you hear about you know that scientists in China are starting to mess with human embryos that you know we could have designer babies and it 's just it feels unnatural and it feels like ah there 's something there 's something wrong I
0: sort that. of remember this one test where they gave people this scenario mm-hmm. of a brother and sister. Having sex with each other. Yes,
1: yeah, that's one of Heights' great creations. Is is the Mark and Julie story? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I always give that to my students too. You know, right?
0: And, and, and the idea is like
1: you take away all the reasons why that's right there's no harm being done they use prote- they use two forms of protection they just decide one night to, you know that they should try having sex with each other so they do it and, and it's great and it, and it brings them closer together so there's no emotional it works harm. for it, them it's great they decide not to do it again but you know they use two forms of protection and then you ask students is that okay and they say hell no, no. of course not, you know. and then you say well, well what's wrong with it and the, you know the, uh, sometimes the first reason students will give is well because you know there there could be you know retarded baby Coming out of that, or, or like, you know, oh some, no, no, we've taken care. Yeah, of Yeah, no, they've used two different forms of protection. Well, but it could be it could mess them up in some other way, psychologically, like yeah. it, it ruin their relationship. Yeah, yeah. And or they, the Bible says it's wrong. Well, the Bible says shellfish is wrong. You know, like there's all kinds of. But in the end, somebody goes like, "Okay, I've got no tangible reason. It's just wrong." Yeah, I'm I'm not gonna. Yeah, you're not gonna convince me that it's that it's perfectly yeah. okay. Yeah. Um, although I have for, and, and actually in, in some of Haidt's early studies, um, philosophy graduate students were the one group that would say, okay, you're right. You've taken away all the reasons, and now I agree that there's nothing wrong with it. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're a very, very rational sort of group that, you know, that was the one group that you could convince. But yeah, that, I think that's one example, right? There's, um, you know, when we when we have specific mechanisms why you know the the idea of sex with our siblings would make us feel disgusted um but that but it's also moralized for you know the idea of of two other people um who are siblings having sex with each other um just strikes people very intuitively as wrong even well, when it's and I've, not I've, a rational reason for
0: it i've talked to some evolutionary um psychologists or, or anthropologists who say listen this purity stuff it grew out it was it's a survival skill yep. like it, it's yeah. evolved like Animals right, don't right. want their feces near their food. That's right. You know, like intuitions of
1: contamination are really yeah. powerful, yeah. and that
0: th- then they get codified. And then even if you take away some of the problems, like oh, well, that's antiseptic, or oh, we clean that. up. That's right. It's still just thousands of years of evolution. Tell me, I don't want yeah. the bathroom next to the kitchen. That's right.
1: That's right. Yeah. And Paul Rosin's done some great stuff. You know, first just looking at physical disgust, where he will um have, you know, he'll have a sterilized cockroach um and he'll put it in the water, or he'll like have a brand new comb and he will take it out of the wrapper and he'll dip it in in water and ask, you know, participants if they want to drink it. And of course they say no. And even though they know there's no reason you know, there's nothing actually harmful in this water, there I still know that there's this sterilized cockroach that was in it. Um and so people feel disgusted. But then he also took it to the level of moral disgust and he would ask people things like um, would you would you wear um, a coat that Adolf Hitler had worn, or right, you know, the sweater would, thing? Yeah, yeah, would you wear Osama bin Laden's sweater or something like that? Um, and so even that, you know, there's this sense of contamination that you know this is not now something physically disgusting, but it's somebody who is so morally evil, so so morally bad that it would sort of taint you if you if you wore that, it would
0: contaminate you. And in and, and my sense, if, if, am I reading like if I'm right, what you're saying is this, hey it doesn't matter if it's reasonable because you're not making moral judgments at the level of reason Mm -hmm.
1: you're making them at the level of some kind of, I don't. Is gut the right word? Yeah, I think I think gut is is the right word, and I, and I think there's always some sort of you know in, interaction between these deliberative conscious processes and and these gut level kind of intuitions. But I do feel like the starting point is that that initial intuition of oh that's just wrong that that's wrong. Um, and there's certainly you know we can we can change our minds about things. I think I think there is a role for reason. Um, I don't think it's all uh, in the gut, but I do think the gut is really really important. And I well, think it's that's-
0: fun- it's funny because like as a I'm new to the secular movement, Mm -hmm. and secular movement is all about reason. That's right. These people love Mm -hmm. reason, and they're not doing that well. Uh We haven't Mm -hmm. done that well with the reason thing. And when I'll get up to talk to students about what secular activism looks like, Mm -hmm. I'm talking to them about reaching out to people and loving them, and I'm telling stories that are meant to play on their emotions and to show them, like, why why compassion is such an important value for them to exhibit. And secular leaders will come up to me and go, like, that's you're creeping me out that man because
1: th- squishy emotions, it's squishy and emotions, and, yeah. and,
0: and, and you're not really. It, we need to stick with reason. Yeah. And my sort of sense is, and it sounds like you would back me up on this, mm-hmm. you don't change people at the Rational level That's nearly right. as easily yeah. as you change them at the did, emotional then, level. Then you
1: could put a liberal and a conservative in the same room, and they could talk rationally. They could use their conscious, you know, powers of argument, and they could convince each other, right? And and the fact is they don't. And I think part of why they don't is because they are operating from these kind of different, you know, intuitions, or uh, you know, they're trying to appeal to each other's reason, but it's really an, an intuitive um, difference that that has led to some of these uh, disputes.
0: Okay, so. What can you tell me about changing people's minds? I need to change some people's
1: it's, minds. It's it's hard. That's one thing we can tell we've done a few studies where we are you know we've had some studies where we we're trying to uh, reduce um, hypocrisy. So you know get people to sort of act more in line with their values. Um, we found that that's been very difficult. We also had some where we were trying to get uh, say liberals and conservatives to stop derogating the other side so much. Um, so we we're trying to reduce you know polarization and and this kind of uh, partisan strife. And so we had one um, study. This is a, a postdoc in my lab, Senna Kaleva, did. And she it was a perspective-taking task. And, and so she had liberals and conservatives write about, well, say that you had the opposite ideology that you have – uh, you know, write about how you came to develop that ideology, and and it's sort of like you know walk through your development as a conservative if if you're actually a liberal. Um, and then she had some questions where she asked them, uh, you know, should conservatives be allowed to speak their mind? How how much do you hate conservatives? Things like that. You know, how much do you sort of derogate the outgroup? Um, and what she found, and so the the plan was that this perspective taking would would get um, liberals and conservatives to just see each other a little bit more, understand each other's positions. Uh, but the polar opposite happened. And so what what happened was when you are trying to perspective take the other side people are writing things like well i don't know if i had been born stupid then i would have gone (laughs) you know i would have gone on this stupid path and i would have ended up with this stupid ideology and so these those people actually ended up um more uh, it, sort of it, it, aggressive, it concretized the their, their. That's right. Their, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it completely backfired on us, and so um, that's one example where I think it's really, really hard to commit. You know, if you're trying to convince liberals and conservatives to agree with each other more, to come to compromise, which I think anybody that wants a more functioning government would would want, um, it's it's really difficult. One of the things that does seem to work is just positive kind of social contacts. Um, yeah. Did so- you? Did you I, I don't know. Did you listen to this? This American
0: Life a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. That is fascinating. They were talking about changing your mind, uh-huh. and they had on these activists here in California, mm-hmm. who after Prop Eight failed, mm-hmm. gay marriage, which everyone thought would succeed, right. it right. failed. The gay rights groups sent out people into the streets to try to figure out what went wrong. What happened? Yeah. And then they and then and they were trying to figure out how to change people's minds. And what they did was they would send out gay people mm-hmm. to talk to people. And they tried all these different strategies and what they found was that the only strategy that worked for them was they would they would say to somebody, so what did you think about Prop 8? And it's like, I voted for it. I, mm-hmm. I think gay marriage is completely wrong and everything like that. Right. And the person would go like, really? Why do you – have you had bad experiences with gay – and they would talk and they would mm-hmm. say, you know, I'm gay. Mm-hmm. And so I guess you're, you, you wouldn't want me to be able to, to marry my partner. Yeah. And they would talk back and forth. And what they found was the only thing that changed people's minds was not being talked to, mm-hmm. was being compassionate, but rather being compassionately listened to yeah. by somebody. And then at, at a certain point, being brought in, not realizing that the person listening to them mm-hmm. was somebody of the out group yeah. that they that, –
1: It was like only relationships
0: would change people's
1: minds, and in Mm -hmm. particular, relationships in which you got listened to. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, there's a sense, you know, when you see these kind of conflicts on TV, you know, in front of an abortion clinic, or or if it's about gay marriage, where there's two big mobs of people and they're holding up signs and they're yelling at each other, you think that you're not going to get anywhere, right? I mean, it's it's too great. And, you know, I, I would say, well, you know, they should have every right to to speak their mind. But in terms of actually convincing the other side, when you have two mobs of people yelling slogans and, and you know, holding up signs that say opposite things, you just know nobody's going to walk away from that with a changed yeah. attitude with that, you know, oh, I, I really, you know, a couple of those signs that I saw on the other side really did make me realize, you know, because it's sort of mob mentality, like, what could you do to to enforce this kind of us versus them thinking, than to have two big groups with, you know, big signs that they're yeah, holding Yeah, nobody's up.
0: listening. Yeah. But I mean, it, 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 you know, it's really interesting to me that sometimes, you know, and I think about this in some relationships I've had where I can't talk somebody out of something, but sometimes if I let them keep talking, mm-hmm. eventually they'll say something like, gosh, the more I listen to myself, I sound, this doesn't sound right to me. Like mm-hmm. I'm yeah. not comfortable yeah. with what I'm saying to you. Yeah. And that- yeah.
1: Yeah. But but of course, it, and, and you know, with attitudes toward gay marriage have have changed really rapidly in just the last you know decade. Yeah. Um. And 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 it's amazing. And a lot of people have been trying to figure out well, why is that? You know, because there's people in psychology that have been working on anti-gay prejudice, anti-gay attitudes for decades, and they're thinking, how did it just flip? Get, and it didn't get fixed. I mean, there's still a long way to go. But but what happened? And and one argument is that it was just this kind of slow build towards a tipping point of people coming out of the closet and admitting that they were gay. And so that just kind of has this diffuse effect where more and more people have personal relationships with people that they know are gay. And they might not be close relationships. It's not like, oh, my brother's gay and now I realize that he's a person too. But it's just a co-worker, you know, yeah. having an out-of-the-closet out of, out of the closet co-worker and realizing, oh, that person's just kind of a normal person and isn't totally different and totally evil. Um, and they don't... And, and
0: I see their relationship and it kind of works for them and yeah. I don't necessarily want to take that away from them. Exactly. And yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. And so all, all the sort of, you know, basic kind of compassion intuitions we have are just interpersonal kind of contact can can come up but if you just think of this out group that you don't really know this is stranger yeah. group that you think and that's
0: i mean that's why i mean i know secular people mm-hmm. a lot of them are secular because they had bad experiences in religion right but i keep trying to tell them like you're not going to get anywhere yelling at religious people and saying you're wrong you yep. poison everything yep. You, you're you, deluded. You're deluded. Yeah. You're yep. stupid. You didn't actually have those transcendent experiences that you said yeah. that they had. Exactly. Yeah. And of course, there's one who grew up in a religious world and, and, and I had transcendent experiences. I would yeah. explain them differently now. Right. But like, please don't tell me I didn't hear a voice. That's right. Yeah. I was They'd there. Say you have no right to your awe that you yeah. felt. You exactly. Know, yeah, exactly. And so I find myself saying to them, listen, the only thing that's going to work hmm. is if you come out of the closet as secular – Mm-hmm. And portray yourself, at, you know, and portray yourself as a kind and loving person with values, yeah. Yeah. With, you know, with moral values, mm-hmm. squishy as they may be. Right. Um, and so it's really fascinating because I, I just see that I, see, you know, I, I see it over and over again. That r- the secular people that are saying, like, damn it, give us our rights and damn it, we want Jesus out of the schools. And, you know, right. yeah. and, and, and you're like, wow, you are just entrenched. Yeah. People become more entrenched.
1: Yeah. So every time there's a statue being built or, or something that says, you know, un, under God, yeah. then, then trying to knock all that down, it just seems like, oh, these are just people that just hate God. You know, they just hate God.
0: Yeah. yeah. And I find myself like, I showed up at the interfaith breakfast today and, you know, there's all this God talk going around. And I go, like, yeah, but. Like, everyone's praying in their own way. Mm-hmm. And it was funny. I was there with the dean of USC, the, of Religious Life. Uh-huh. And he said to me, he said, so what do you do at a prayer breakfast? And I said, I pray. Yeah. And he said, well, who do you pray to? And I <laughs> said, well, we're humanists. We pray to each other. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we pray, to, we pray to the better angel of our own nature. That's
1: right. There's still things to connect to outside
0: there's, yourself. There's still things yeah. we want to have happen. And we articulate, this is what I hope will
1: happen. Yeah. Um, I like the idea of secular prayer. I mean, I I think things like that could really open people up to – the idea of secularism. It's like, oh, you you don't just laugh at prayer, you know? Like I think that's a, a sort of notion of the, you know, the, the atheist is somebody that just laughs at us, you know. Yeah. That just laughs at religious people. If you're praying, you know, and I think people kind of intuitively know, like, well, this this praying that I've been doing makes me a good person. And even people that you know are religious but aren't really sure about you know the afterlife or if there's a God, I think people know, like, well, no, but I know the people in my congregation are are good people. And I know the people that that pray, they're 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 working on themselves, they're trying to be Better people. So, why would you ever say that's a bad thing? Yeah, they're reflecting on their moral values in a way that oftentimes leads to action. They're expressing gratitude. And even if you think, well, nobody's there to hear their prayer, so it's totally useless. No, it's not. It's not useless. I mean, it's funny. We pray before
0: every meal, we stop and give Mm -hmm. thanks. And you say, well, you you don't believe in any supernaturalism. And I I go, like, I know, but life still strikes me as a gift from nowhere. Mm -hmm. Like, it may be a gift from no one, but it still strikes me as a gift. I'm still so thrilled to be alive. Mm So I got one more question for you yeah. or one more area that I'd like you to talk about because mm-hmm. I I was reading up on some of your most recent stuff that you've put mm-hmm. out there because I, I know you're fighting not to perish so you keep publishing. That's
1: right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I
0: start to perish a little bit, I just publish a little bit. <laughs> I feel the little death. You know? But it feels like one of the things that you did was – You're studying what – that because we're talking about how do you change people's minds? How do you change their hearts Mm -hmm. about things? How do you – and you go like, how do you get them to adopt certain moral values? Mm -hmm. But my sense is that your understanding is that, yeah, even once they've accepted those moral values, they won't live up to them. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Yeah. That that people claim to have one set of moral values but that we're very prone to hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So my question is, what are the factors that cause somebody to live up to their – Best sell for their or their highest values. Mm-hmm. What, what have you discovered? Like people live up to their moral values when?
1: Yeah. What? No, it's it, it's a great question. It's one that I wish I had a, a good sort of empirically justified answer for. And it's it's the kind of thing that we're working on. Um, but we don't know. We don't have a good sense yet, um, to be honest, of what are the fact. You know, if if you wanted to construct a, a society or even just a situation, if you wanted to construct a situation where people are best able to live up to their values, what would be the best way to do that? Um, you know there's there's some indication from from some of our re- research and some of others that um having some sense of being watched uh can can help people just cheat less or or be more honest uh things like that so you know there's there's plenty of um you know things where uh if you if it's like um i don't know Take a dollar, take a donut, and leave a dollar, kind of thing. But it's not honor policy kind of thing. They'll put up a pair of eyes up on the wall. I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that actually is effective, and you, and you get more people actually paying for it. You get less people cheating. Uh, we had a great study that that my student Erica Bell ran. She was interested in anthropomorphism, you know, how we treat non-human objects like like human. And so we did this this study with a stapler. And so in one condition. So people are randomly assigned to one of two conditions in one condition they just had to write about the stapler and just describe it and draw a picture of it um, but so they 're paying attention to the stapler for five minutes, but that 's it and in the other condition, they were supposed to anthropomorphize it so it said you know this is kind of weird, but just treat pretend like the stapler is a person, write about its personality, write about its hopes and fears, give it a name you know and draw a picture of it and people would, you know put eyes on the stapler and things like that so they were just had had to treat this stapler for five minutes as if it was a person and then for half of the people in each of these conditions the stapler was left in the room, or it wasn't. And what we found was, uh, if it was just a stapler that people wrote about, it didn't really, it, its presence didn't affect how much people cheated on a subsequent task. But if you had an anthropomorphized stapler in the room, that actually made people cheat less. So it had, the, and it actually was as strong an effect as having a person there in the room. And so it's just, it's not actually being watched. It's just the, the, the sense that somebody else is there watching you. And it can be as simple as, you know, I just talked to the stapler as if it was a person for five minutes, and and that actually um, did that. So part of what's really hard, though, in this question of how to get people to live up to their values is that I do think values come into conflict all the time. Um, a, a really mundane example would be, you know, somebody's wearing… Um, some really, I don't know, ugly shirt or something and, and asks you what you think. And so we, we all have a value that we want to live up to, you know, always being as honest as possible. But we also have a value of compassion, right? These are very common. People, you know, generally share these values. Um, and that's a really mundane, small example where those two come into conflict. You don't want to hurt the person's feelings, but you also don't want to just be lying to people all the time. And so it's a little bit, you know, it's always this kind of moral dilemma, um, really, really minor moral dilemma. You yeah, know, it's yeah, not, yeah, It's not... Should you, you know, kill one person to save five? Kind of dilemma. It's just a little, little social interaction that happens all the time. Um, so I think a lot of ways, when we don't live up to a value, it's because it's come into conflict with some other value. So I don't always see it as a as a bad thing when we don't live up to our values. Um, and as I said before, you know, having a, a notion that there's a sort of dark side to moral convictions, I think there's plenty of cases where we would not want people to live up to their values. You know, so if somebody's a, a suicide bomber and and all of their sort of moral values
0: be the, a hypocrite. The,
1: yeah, the best thing I do, I, I would say, be a hypocrite. You know, don't live up to those values. And there are a lot of cases where people don't. You know, where
0: well, yeah, I mean, some of the studies would suggest that when there's a terrorist attack, and then they poll people and say, how many of you. Think that was a good thing. Millions of people say, "Yeah, that was the right thing to do." You know, that guy mm-hmm. shouldn't have drawn that cartoon. They needed to be blown up. But millions of people didn't attack. That's right. And so you're that's like, right. "I'm right. glad there are all those wishy washy fundamentalists." Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's you know, right. of, of any religion. You know, yeah. I'm like, I'm glad there are wishy washy Christians. I'm glad there are wishy washy right. Muslims. Yeah. I'm you know, yeah. because if everybody was serious about their convictions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of those convictions come into great conflict.
1: Yeah, you made me realize I'm I'm actually becoming increasingly pro-wishy-washy. I think that's my that, that's my official ideology is wishy-washy. Yeah, it's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, it's a good thing.
0: Well, listen, um, it's 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 funny because you know when you're talking about the staplers, mm-hmm. I I heard this other study where um people sit in a room with a stranger, like they just bring a stranger in to sit in mm-hmm. a room with you, and your levels of stress will go up, like because we're evolved to be a little bit. Yeah. Who is this? Who is, is this? Am yeah. I in danger? Yeah. And they say, but if you play garage band with that person, <laughs> like a video game uh-huh. for 15 minutes, not speaking to each other, just playing the game. Yeah. Then that person, the, the, the stress levels will go down to the, the level it's as if you were sitting with a good, a, a, a close acquaintance. Yeah.
1: So that's all it takes to.
0: And so it's funny, like you anthropomorph. sometimes we have to anthropomorphize a state board and sometimes we actually have to anthropomorphize Another human being. That's right. Yeah. Because they're not, when we first meet them. Yeah. What is this threat? Human. They are, they are, they are a threat. And so it's interesting that, like, maybe that's one of the things that we need to do is we just need to figure out ways to help people anthropomorphize each other.
1: Yeah. Just that little bit, just to get across that little gulf. And then, Yeah. yeah.
0: You know, the, I, I, I'm, and I'm going to let you go, but I got to tell you that, that I'm disappointed because – and the reason I'm disappointed is because what I was hoping you would say <laughs> when I said, how do we help people live up to their morality mm-hmm. and, and li- their convictions? I hope you I, – I, I hoped you were going to say, oh, it's when they are in a com- collective community – Reaffirming those values on a weekly basis, mm-hmm. singing songs about those values, <laughs> um, you know reading doing readings about those values, getting inspirational talks about those yeah. values. I preferably
1: I, I, in a secular humanist chapel
0: led by me <laughs> <Yeah>. no. No. <laughs> I, mean, I was kind of hoping that that's what you would say but yeah. but is there any reason to believe that collectivism or or, or that
1: that sort of spiritual communities help people? I, I think they absolutely do help people, I, and I think there's there's good solid research uh, showing that that if if sort of well being is is the goal, or just happiness, but and not just surface level happiness, but also a sense of meaning and purpose in life, that is really coming from this kind of. Uh, you know congregation from this sort of tight knit group, having positive relationships, but not just dyadic relationships, but you know this sort of group level like I think there's something about um humans that we're not just individualistic, we really do like kind of we are um, tribal yeah we we are tribal we're we're absolutely tribal, and we also like you know pointing beyond ourselves so i you know we we like. Uh, losing our sense of self in something greater, you know. Yeah. And I think that's something that religion does very, very well. Um, but I don't think it requires a particular kind of religious belief. You know, some people will have that at you know. Some people go to Burning Man and lose themselves, right? right? And a U um, two concert, yeah, U two concert or meditation. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of ways that you know, and, and um, there's been a lot of research on flow where you sort of lose yourself in some task. You know, if you're like a uh, you know professional musician, you just completely lose any self consciousness because you're working so hard at something that you practice for so long. Um, so I think all of this sort of loss of of self is is really good for people and it's not just Good to make them, you know, ecstatically happy all the time. I think it's good for their meaning and purpose, but you're, um, but it
0: doesn't necessarily help them to live up to their values. I don't,
1: yeah, I don't know that it necessarily helps you to live up Damn to your it. values. It, it, you know, in some ways, if your values are having meaning and purpose, I, I think that's that's part of it. Um, but you know, it, I I don't know of any research showing that you know if you really believe in this kind of moral principle or or this kind of thing, uh, you will behave more in line with it if you're connected to this to this or, organization. But that could just be See, because my that God research tells, hasn't been the, the done. One, yeah. The one
0: thing – I had a friend who t- wants – who's very excited about the secular congregation mm-hmm. that I'm pulling together in Los Angeles. And the reason he said was he said, when I was in church, I was much more generous with my money. Hmm. Yeah. And he said, since I've stopped going to church because I don't believe, right. I still want to be generous, but I'm just not generally as generous. Yeah. And I feel like if I was part of a congregation like the one you're talking about – it would influence me to give more of my time and more of my right, money. Yeah. And there's – So he doesn't have
1: that happiness that comes from giving making others happy.
0: And every indication is that people within congregations give more that's right. than yeah. people outside of them. Yeah. Now, maybe that that's I, 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 – maybe that they also join congregations. Like it may not be causal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to believe that it's causal.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think so. I mean in some ways what we should do is a study where we randomly assign students on campus – to, to go to your weekly meetings or not, and then look you know, and then and, see what happens. The, yeah, can we do that if we really wanted to do this sort of causal story? Um, that would be a big study. That would be, that'd be you know. <laughs> I'm trying to think what we'd have to do to uh, you know induce them and in, in, incite the students to to stick with that for a long period of time. Yeah. there.
0: Yeah. That would be a fascinating thing is to see, like, if I jam you into a religious fellowship. Although, you know, yeah. half the Catholic people I know would say that's my, that was my experience in childhood. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. You know, as I got yeah. jammed
0: into religious fellowship. That's right. Yeah. And then they yeah. come here and they don't believe in God, a lot of them, but they'll say to me, but I'm still really, I, I still really got a lot out of being I got part of that. of
1: that. I got something out of it. Yeah. yeah. There have been some studies. Actually, Scott Wiltermith, who's here in the business school, he's done some cool studies um, where I guess he's trying to do a little bit of that in a very, very simple way. Um, where he does these studies on synchrony. So he'll have people move together in time. You know, it's, it's things that you would see in religious... Um uh, you know, rituals and people moving together, but also singing together. I um, mean, he usually has people wearing headphones and they're either doing it in sync with each other or a little bit off, right? So they're a little bit out of sync. And then he'll look at things like uh, if they have, you know, the, you have these uh, cooperative economic games, Right. Um, people will put more money into the collective pot if they've been moving together in time uh, then, versus then if they've been out of sync. Out of sync. Um, so that, I think, in a, in a really small way is trying to do, you know, in, in – Just a you know one hour period. What what you might be after in actually building a congregation where people actually are you know in many more areas of life in sync with each other. Yeah, I was
0: very influenced by Barbara Ehrenreich, who wrote who wrote this book um, Dancing in the Streets. That's right. Yeah, History of Collective Joy, and 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 that was her whole thing. Is she said, look, this is a human technology that evolved over over thousands of years, and then the Protestant Reformation came along. And basically sort of squashed it no out. Dancing. Yeah. No dancing. No yeah. dancing. And, and 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 no partying. And and she said and, and then and then exported it all over the world and like we'll go to Africa and no dancing. You know. Right, right. And and that strangely enough, at around that about that time, you know, depression yeah. and enemy and, yeah. and strife yeah. emerged in, in people's you know, and she's saying – Let's go
1: ruin communities around the world. With, and then and then see what happens. With our outreach, yeah.
0: Yeah. And so it's very interesting to me because you're right. That's exactly what I want to do is I want people to be moving in, in synchrony. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My friends at the Sunday Assembly, this sort of atheist thing, a, a, sort of secular mm-hmm. co- celebration of life that they do, sort of secular church, mm-hmm. they sing, but they sing pop songs.
1: Oh, okay. And yeah. I keep
0: telling them, <laughs> pop songs won't do for you. Yeah. What, what, what music does for church people. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. So so you're right. That's what I'm about. Yeah. And, and I guess, I guess it remains to be seen whether it'll make people less hypocritical. It it
1: does. Yeah. Yeah. The The research hasn't been done, but, but I, I, I agree with you. I think it's a good thing. I think it's very powerful.
0: Well, listen, this has been a great conversation, and I want to thank you, and I want to thank your stapler. um, (laughs) That's good. people
1: has been here listening to us the whole time.
0: (laughs) No, seriously, thanks a lot for doing this. Thank you. No, it's really great. And for those of you that like to listen to this podcast, thanks for listening.
1: One time for my time.